turn, if you will, to John 5. Let us read the narrative, and then we'll make some comments. This is the only part that you get amen with full conviction, the reading of the word, right? It is truly God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which one. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We have at least three different places in the gospel where there's a Sabbath battle and war that breaks out. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is God's word. Amen? I want to speak on the controversial Christ. No subject in history, past or present, has been more controversial than Jesus Christ. And the greatest controversy is, who in the world is he? Is he just the son of the carpenter? Is he just the son of Joseph? Is he an illegitimate child of Mary? Is he a child of fornication? Is he deity? Is he a good man, a nice man, uh, a prophet? Uh, all kinds of things. Who is this man? And the controversy rages. I want us to look at three things in the narrative. Number one, the healing of the man. Kind of straightforward, and uh, we'll just look at a few things about it. Then, the Sabbath controversy, and Christ's 
really stirs up the waters because when they bring up the Sabbath breaking, he throws in, by the way, God is my Father. This really puts them into uh, fervent anger and they continue their plot. This will signal the death plot. From here on, he's going to be plotted and sought to be killed. And when they killed him, they said, we do not kill you for a good work. We kill you for blasphemy, for you claim to be God. And you claim to be equal with God. This will get you killed in Judaism in 33 A.D. It would get you killed today. In Muslim countries, it gets you killed if, if uh, the law didn't restrain you in Israel, if the rabbis could, and you got up in the synagogue and said, Yeshua HaMashiach is Jesus Christ, the Christ of Christianity. If they could, they would stone you. He is not without controversy. Let's first of all look at the man. What a story. Within view of the temple site is a pool. It was fed by two springs of water. Once in a while, these waters uh, would have a surge from the springs, and tradition has it that the waters would bubble more at that time, be more stirred up. And so a tradition and a superstition grew up around the stirring of the waters. In the best text, they don't even have the mention of the angels stirring the water. That seemed to be a local tradition. Look, this wasn't necessarily what God was saying. But some people got in, some people actually were healed. And, uh, but we have a pitiful case here. We've got a man who for 38 years has laid by this pool, and he's got a problem. He is so infirm, so slow, he can't get first in the line. His disease has left him unable to get to the cure. He can't get to the cure. Does it matter how wonderful it might be? I can't get into that which can cure me. Well, in walks the healer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and finds this man, and he says, I want to ask you a question. Do you want to get well? That's a good question. Some people get more attention staying sick. Some people have got to always have a problem to be sure they're center stage for attention. Do you really want to get well? Do you want to be well? That's all he asks. It doesn't say this man says, thou art the Christ. He had no clue he was the Christ. He didn't say, I believe. There's nothing said about this man, anything virtuous. He seems to be a kind of a bumbling kind of a guy. He didn't even know who it was that gets him well. He, he could care less if he was a prophet, if he was Messiah. All I know is I got well. And Jesus said, just take up your mat and walk. And like that, a disease for 38 years evaporates, goes into his past, and this guy is so exuberant, uh, he, he didn't look at his calendar to see which day this could happen. When you want to get well, any day is right. And so he, in his exuberance, goes on, and imagine what the uh, local talk was. A man for 38 years at this pool, it got out. The word got out. He's been healed, and who goes looking for him? But the religious leaders of the day bankrupt Judaism. And they looked the man up. Did you get healed? Yes, I did get healed. Did you look at your calendar? Well, no, I didn't. Uh, uh, we, we want to write you up. What is it? You broke the rule. What's the rule? The Sabbath rule. What is an amazing picture to me here is here you've got a picture of helpless humanity, cannot rescue themselves, cannot even get to the healing. They can see it from afar. 
religious institution within view of Bethesda. You can look right up to the temple site. And we've got a religion so powerless that you can't change my condition, but you've got enough rules that no man can keep up with. And the human race is still trying to reach God by rules. Make the rules. What the man needed was a changed life. What the man needed was power, something to transform him. And I want to say this world is filled with formulas of how to get to God. The major one that people love, it's called the merit ladder to get to God. Give me something to do so I can earn God's favor. Well, if we gave it to you, mister, you're so lame since the fall of Adam in your heart, you can't keep anything God gives. He gave 613 commandments. In the Ten Commandments and the rest of the book of Exodus, 613, we can't keep the ten. What's he doing? Rules won't get you well. Religion can't get you well. There's only one man operating around Jerusalem at this time that could get you well. It's Jesus Christ alone could make the man well. Judaism couldn't do it. Rome couldn't do it. Medicine couldn't do it. He was, he, the Americans love this picture because the guy first in line gets the healing. And you aggressive types love that. You're type A. I'll be first in the line. This man never could get first. You see, that's an amazing thing about God, too. God as a whole has chosen to save everybody that's not first. He chooses the weakest. He chooses the unlikely. He chooses the ungodly. And he chooses those that can't get to the front of the line. So, in the miracle, what comes out of it, a healer is working down at Bethesda, and it's not an angel in the water. It's who's outside the water, Christ. What happens? Sabbatical controversy. You can't be getting healed on the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath controversy? Let's just give you a little bit about it. Sabbat meant to rest. After God had created for six days, it says he rested. Now, what does that mean? He became inactive. The whole universe would cave in on itself if God went to sleep after six days. For God's power, who holds uh, the galaxies in their place? Who keeps the moon, the sun, in its, you know, its very orbit? It, uh, who keeps the tides within their boundaries? What keeps them? God said, who keeps every atom in place? On and on. And so he says, no, God rested from his work of creation, but he has not stopped working at all. And so when the Sabbath came along and God gave it to Israel, what the intent was, rest from what you normally do vocationally, homemaker, one day out of seven, take a break from your ordinary occupational duties just to focus on God, just to do nothing but think, rest, and worship God. But the rabbis came along and they added 39 rules of what you had to do on the Sabbath. Had nothing to do with scripture. Religion is great at making rules and terrible at changing lives. Great at rules. They had some rules like this. I was very uh, amazed as I was reading it and studying this. They actually had dentures in the first century. And, and the rabbi says, you can't wear them on the Sabbath. Come on, let the guy eat. <laughs> Can you imagine eating grain? Just your gums? Uh, they had a rule that if you uh, carried your jacket over your arm, you broke the Sabbath. If you wore your jacket, it was okay. You just can't carry it. So you, now you've got to get these rules. Quit laughing out there. You've got to get these rules. 
You might be a Sabbath breaker, and you are, all of you. We don't keep any of the Sabbath. Uh, they had things like this. Be careful where you spit. If you spit on a rock, it's okay. But if you spit on dirt, you're guilty of irrigation. Yeah, this is rabbinic literature. 39 rules about the Sabbath. And so all they were concerned, you can't be healing on the Sabbath. And Christ kept showing them the Gospels. I am the Lord over the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. You guys will pull an ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath, but you won't do anything good for a son of Abraham. What they had done, if it involved real estate, money, uh, property, it's okay. But if it's doing healing, doing God kind of works, you can't do it. And you see the terrible bankruptcy of what God's revealed religion to Israel had fallen into. You're just concerned about rules. You're blind to Messiah. You're blind to human need. You're just full of prejudicial rules. That's what scares me about dead Christianity. The only thing left when you're dead in Christianity are the rules. You've lost life. You've lost power. You've lost joy. You've lost peace. But oh, can you quote the rules? You know what we ought to act like. And if we let you, you would prescribe everything we can do. But thank God he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I'm not under the law of Moses nor the law of men. I'm under Caesar. I submit to Caesar. That's one thing. As long as Caesar doesn't tell me to violate God. Caesar tells me to kill a baby, what do I do? Obey God rather than men. By the way, you men might as well know, we tell wives to submit in marriage until your husband tells you to do something that God is against. You never do what a husband wants you to do if it's against God. God's first, not the husband. You submit to your husband as unto the Lord. I would think more women would amen that. But you're scared. Your husband won't let you. That's okay. Guys, come on, let her lift her hands. Uh, so we've got a healing. We've got a controversy. And in the midst of that, Christ says, let me tell you who I am. You're accusing me by calling God my father. See, we don't call God my father. We say our father. Sonship and God's the father, the doctrine that God is the father of everybody, universal fatherhood of God is not found in the Bible. He's called to be father of four different beings, angels, Job 1 and 2. The sons of God sang in the morning of creation. So God had a father, creative son relationship. He called the nation of Israel, Hosea 11.1, 1, Thou art my son, out of Egypt have I called you. And it was applied to Christ himself, but it was used of the nation. We are called sons of God by adoption. You became God's adopted children. And so we have that relationship. But when we use the son, God the son, there's a word used of him called monogenes. Only begotten. And monogenes means one of a kind. There's only one father-son relationship like the father and God the son share. It's the unique relationship of all father-son relationships. He is the only begotten, not procreated. He's the unique son, never created, forever the son. And so he says, God is my father, and as he's been working, so I am working. For this, the Jews, they, they would have killed him that day. He doesn't say, no, 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 you're mistaken. You didn't understand what I said. For they said, when you call God your father, like my God, you made yourself equal. 
Why didn't Christ edit and say, oh, you're mistaken. You didn't understand. No, he said, you got it. That's what I just said. And now, now he's going to give four other claims on top of that to say, you heard me right. I and the Father are equal. Did you see, if, if God the Father and God the Son uh, did some arm wrestling, neither one could ever win. If it's on the basis of power. Guess, what, guess how the Father wins? The Son submits to the Father. If the Father says, Son, I want you to lose, he said, okay. He'd do whatever the Father said. But if it's just mere power, uh, the Son is as powerful as the Father. Did you know the Father... Uh, doesn't know anything the son doesn't know except in his humanity. He wouldn't tell him when he was going to send him back to the earth. So he kept him ignorant in his humanity. He said, only my father knows when I'm coming back. As God he knows, but not as the God man. Confusing? Nothing like it in all history. The unique person. God the son. My father is greater than I. Uh-oh. There, he's more deity. No, no, no. He's greater in authority while I'm on the earth. He, it's like you working for a guy, and this is what's hard. I'm working for a guy that's a bimbo, you say. I know as much as him. I'm as good as him, but he happens to be the foreman. And he doesn't know half as much as me. I know. No one is smart as you. But he's greater in authority over you, is he not? It's in marriage. We tell women, God wants the man to leave the home. He ought to be greater in authority. But he's not greater in equality. Women are no less made in the image of God than a man. Men are not made more in the image of God than women. He said he made them male and female, so he made them in his image. And we've made a great mistake of devaluating women and as though they weren't made in God's image. I hear people say, well, they don't learn as good as us. Well, why are you remaining so dumb? <laughs> They're heading corporations. They're getting degrees, more degrees than men today. Women are just taken off. And we even do it in the church sometimes. Well, you, you don't... You, you know, you can't learn doctrine like men. Oh, so you don't have the Holy Spirit. So regeneration didn't work in you. You, you mean I have to be a stud to really be illuminated? I, I thought regeneration did something to me so I could understand God. Wow, it's quiet. <laughs> this is blessed quietness. I've never heard it this quiet. Well, we must, we must get back to the text. I am equal to God, and let me tell you some other things. That is Christ, by the way, not me. 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he sees the Father doing, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What is he saying? I'm equal with the Father, and I can do whatever the Father does. What he's doing here probably, some scholars believe, that until the Industrial Revolution Sons were always taught to do the trade of their father. And so you worked every day with your dad. And whatever your dad did, worked with leather, steel, the ground, whatever, you were going to be what your father was. That's how the education went. And even sometimes if a father was like a, uh, uh, in England, in the 70s, if he was a, a tradesman, Sometimes he would send his son to another dad that could teach him to be better than even the father was. But the son learned to do the trade of the father. And Christ is saying, 
There's nothing my Father can do in all of creation that he hasn't shown me and that I am not able to duplicate. Anything the Father does, I can do. Uh, that is an astounding, astounding claim. I can duplicate whatever God the Father does. Um, can the Father create the world? So can I. John 1, 1 through 1, 3, by me, God used me to create everything. He was the designer. I was the agent that made it. You can read it in John 1. You can read it in Colossians 1, 15. I make all things by me, through me, for me, and I sustain everything by my power, not the Father's, by the Son's power. So he said, whatever the Father does, I can do. Then he makes another claim. The Father raises the dead and gives life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father's a life giver, primarily here probably the resurrection of the dead, but I'm able to give eternal life to men. He that has the Son has eternal life. He that believes on the Son gets eternal life. My Father can beget life. My Father can beget resurrection life, but I can give you eternal life. A claim of his deity keeps going on. See, you, you, you must know the controversy. What I'm saying today, hear me, in Saudi Arabia would bring my beheading. You get beheaded for what I've said so far. In Judaism, if I was in Israel today in the synagogue and they didn't have civil authorities and law, if I was just left to the Orthodox community, I'd be stoned before the day's over, just for what I've said. So if I go into the Islamic world, I'm dead if I say this publicly. If I go to unrestrained Judaism, I'm stoned before the day's over. If I go to liberal Protestantism, who has uh, denied his bodily resurrection, has denied blood atonement, they don't believe Christ is only an example, but he does not atone for sin because men are not sinners. They just need a nice pat on the back and a push, and they'll get better. If I went to liberal uh, Protestantism, they would give you a less than Christ. Catholicism would say he is God. Uh, let's say I went to uh, Mormons. What would the Mormon church tell me about Jesus? This is what they'd say. Jesus is a nice teacher, but he's one of many gods. Listen, Mormons teach that there is a full pantheon of gods. Jesus, before coming to the earth, was the spirit brother to Lucifer, was a polygamist who was married to Mary and Martha, who was rewarded for his faithfulness by becoming the ruler of the earth. They say couples whose marriages are not sealed in this life become angels, and you forfeit becoming gods, so you need to get married in the Mormon church if you want to get to godhood. Some have settled, I just soon be single and happy, I'll settle for being an angel. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is a mighty God, but not the almighty God. He is not Jehovah. In other words, he was the first and direct creation of God. He was the first thing the real God, God the Father, made. He's a created being. Uh, he was the start of God's creative work. Charles Russell, who founded Jehovah's Witnesses, said Jesus was the half-brother of Michael, the archangel, before coming to the earth. Jesus is an angel who became a man. He is a God, a small God, but he's not the God, the Son, who is co-eternal, co-equal. Christian science, Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy said, 
The Christians who believe in the first commandment is a monotheist. This virtually unites with the Jews' belief in one God and recognizes that Jesus Christ is not God, as Jesus himself declared, but is the Son of God. I want to just say two things. When we say we are Trinitarian, we are saying there's one God. We do not worship three gods. We are not tritheist. We are not polytheist. We are monotheist. But we're different from Judaism, different from Islam, different from just say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Yes, he is. But the one is a compound unity. He is one. But he's also manifested in three person. So, the way we commonly talk about this, we have compound unity. There could be many parts, but one whole. The example, uh, we use the illustration of one cluster of grapes. Many individual, but one cluster. We talk about this. He made the morning and the evening was the first day. One day various parts. Here's the mystery that baffles all of us. Husband and wife are one. And see, people laugh. You've got to be kidding. This is a joke. We've not agreed on anything since we got married. You know what I mean? We're one. Wait, she wants this. You, you have to be talking different languages. We're one, but we're two. Uh, he's supposed to lead, I'm supposed to submit. Come on, there's something going on here. Hey, compound unity. You're one in a different way than you're two. And in God's sight, he sees you compi uh, uh, comprising a unity of one. One marriage, one unity. Man and wife are seen as one. God said that. And it's modeled after the Trinity. Every family unit gets its model from the Trinity. The Trinity has never had a fight among themselves. They've never battled over submission. They've never battled over roles. They've never battled over who calls it, who's got the most power. They are the model of all unity where there's diversity but oneness. Father, Make them one as you and I are one. Two distinct persons, but bound by a divine unity, one purpose, one nature, bent on the same thing. Our God, Jesus Christ, is called God about 14 different places in the Bible. Titus 2.14, Romans 9.5, John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, on and on, all the way through the book of John he is the controversy. He's contrary to the Islam Christ. He's contrary to the liberal Protestant Christ. He's contrary to Jehovah's Witnesses. He's contrary to the cults. He's contrary to polytheism. He's contrary to the pantheon. He's not one among many. He's one over all. He is above all. He is Lord of all. He is saying, I am God. I can do what God does. I am not just a nice man, a nice teacher, a nice model. I am one with God. You've got to hold on to that or else you're not a Christian. This will not come. You remember what Thomas said, I won't believe until I see the nails marks in his hands. And by the time he saw, he says, my Lord and my God, for a good old Jew, that would be blasphemy. That would bring the death penalty. You are my Lord and you are my God. Jesus told Philip, Philip, you still want to see God? Anybody that's seen me, seen all the God they could ever see. I'm not diminished God. I'm not a little bit of God. And I'm not a hippie running around Palestine. I am God, God's Messiah. This is the controversy. 
You could talk about God till you're blue in the face and everybody will, what? matter of fact, matter of fact, listen, let me tell you about my spirituality. Yes? Let me first of all consult my tea leaves, my crystals, and my life coach who is a channeler and, and we can get and talk about spirituality because that's the new term. I'm spiritual. What's that? Which spirit are you talking? If any man comes to you and they abide not in this doctrine of Christ, let them be considered antichrist. 1 John 4. You're quiet and many of you are as dumb as a piece of wood about how to explain it. It's time you get over it. You need to get your Bible, and you need to find out more false teachings, false doctrines, and things that will undermine your faith. Do you know why he's God? Did, can you show that in your Bible? If you don't, you ought to go home and Google somebody that has it right. Please don't Google uh, Jehovah Witness. Please don't Google. Go up. Uh, Who's our guy on the radio, our defense man? Buy some books from the cult. You got to know this stuff. This is Christianity, not coming down here taking an offering. We meet around the most controversial figure in history and only the grace of God. We haven't been killed in this country and it may still come, but he's still Lord. He's still Christ. He is deity. He is not just a nice man. He's God, God in the flesh. C.S. Lewis said, you, he can't be a nice man and lie about his own identity. He can't be a good teacher and tell us he's a, a God's son and equal with God, but boy, he teaches good, just don't believe him. No, as Lewis said it famously, this man's either a lunatic who thought he was God and taught it, but he wasn't, or he's a liar because he's intentionally deceiving, or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, you need to bow down and adore him. He's Lord. And he says, listen to what he says here. He says, the Father raises the dead and gives him life. He's going to let me do this. Listen to what he says. The Father judges no one. Isn't that interesting? The Father judges no one. Haven't you always thought when you die, you go before the Father? Listen. The Father judges no one. Ooh, good, I got rid of that. Oh, what? I've delegated this. He's given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He says, I'm equal with God. I can do what God does. I can give life like God the Father. Matter of fact, the Father will judge no one. I will judge on his behalf. And I am to be honored just as my Father is honored. Now, Jesus Christ is going to judge all judgment. What judgments are coming? Well, he's going to judge angels, and he said we get to help him, 1 Corinthians 6. We will get to judge angels, so we ought to be able to judge what goes on in the church. That's why we do church discipline. We have the right to judge the lives of our members. And you want something better than that? Demons will be judged by the church and Satan himself, we will weigh in with Christ and judge him and call him a liar and rejoice to see him thrown in the lake of fire. You will be there, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, judge the nations, uh, Matthew 25. He's going to judge sheep and goat nations by the way they treated Israel during the tribulation. And those who were good to Israel so that they trusted Christ get to go into the millennial reign of Christ. Christ will call who's a sheep and who's a goat. Uh, the believer's works, all your works as a believer. Let's say you got saved at age 20. Everything you've done in your life since age 20 to where you are now 
is going to be appraised by the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. He's not going to judge you as a person. It's not a judgment to see if you go to heaven. It's an evaluation of your works and to decide what reward or loss of reward you get. It's a, a remarkable thing that God wants to use us. He's gifted us. He grants the power to do his will. And then he says, I will reward you on the day I judge your works. I'm going to just appraise him like I put torch to wheat, torch to chaff. And uh, it's amazing to me. Has God saved you to work for him? Did God save you to worship him? Did he give you the enablement to do the assignment? Has he given us enough power? Sounds good. I love these amens. You guys are quiet. Uh, Does he give you enough power to live for him? He said in Ephesians 1, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power I shown towards my people. So we've got all the power. We've got spiritual gifts. Uh, We all have the same Lord. We've all been forgiven the same sin. And we all will appear before the same Lord. And he's going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? I gave you talent. I gave you spiritual gifts. I gave you the power of my spirit. I gave you the access of prayer. Did I short you on anything? No. What did you do? Let's evaluate it. Oh, you got saved at 20. Yeah. And what did you do? Well, uh, I always felt inferior. Okay, one, you felt inferior. Two, uh, I sure have got good at my hobby. Good. Really, that's wonderful. So did Lennon. So did Bobby Fisher. What else did you do? Uh, did you ever teach anybody? Oh, I wasn't gifted for that. Okay. Ever work with kids? Oh, you've got to be kidding. I wouldn't have gone to the church if they didn't have a nursery. Uh, all right. What did you do? Well, I just kept telling myself I didn't have to do anything. I thought grace was you don't have to do anything. But you don't to be saved. But the operation of grace in you makes you want to serve him, love him, uh, and do everything. Even a cup of water given in his name uh, gets a reward. I want to give my money for him. I want to give my life for him. I want to give my time for him. Because, you know, I've been captured by him. He's Lord, you know. Yeah, he is. You're talking to the Lord. You're right there before him. Every one of you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone, we won't be there as a congregation. You individually come before him. Just you and him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that he may reward us for what we have done, whether it be good or bad. And the word bad doesn't mean bank robberies. Doesn't mean cussing. Doesn't mean stealing. Doesn't mean fighting. The word bad is worthless. I know a lot of fine Christians, they don't do any bad stuff, and neither do they do much good. They're just nice folks that don't do much. They like a hymn or two, short sermons, and don't mention money. They just like everything. I say, after that's all said and done, where have you spent your life since you become a believer? Church hopping, nagging about preachers, griping about the church. Can anything improve because you're here? Will you contribute to the impact of this local church or any local church you call your home? Is any difference made? Is God doing anything through you to further the name of Christ on the earth? What is it? Well, I'm voting Republican. Well, hallelujah. You think Jesus is the Lord of the Republican Party? Come on, is he? 
I don't know who to vote for. I vote for Jesus, but you can't get it in the ballot box. I'm disgusted with everything I've seen. I refuse to hear all the garbage. I got to keep my mind on this earth. I'm serving a different king and a different agenda. And I don't belong to either party in my heart. I belong to Christ. You can go to pot on all the social issues. I'll tell you the greatest social issue we got on this earth. The church is the salt and the light, not politics. The church, one life at a time. We're going to have vacation Bible school next week. I went over there Saturday because, you know, when you sleep with the children's director, you got to show up. I'm married to her, by the way. You get in there and all this decoration. I see all these women and, and men and Scott Calendar making planes and sand, all this stuff. I think, my lands, all this work. I mean, artistic, beautiful. You go over and see it. You, you just take a trip over there. See, some of you never went over there to see what goes on. And, and I wish we could get the generations more over here so you could see the marvelous work going on with children young people, and teenagers. It's wonderful, but you never see it hardly. Just walk over there. Have your rabies shots, but just go ahead and walk through. <laughs> you, you'll build up immunity. They only bite a little bit. Get over there. Somebody said, well, I got the gift to teach. No, you don't, or you'd be teaching. Don't tell me about your gift. Show me your gift. Show me. Where do you pray? Who are you ministering to? Where are you breaking out? And you're going to get before Jesus, and you're going to say, what have you done since I came in your life? John Piper's little book, Don't Waste Your Life, tells about, I believe it was Time Magazine article that interviewed this couple. What is your goal in life when you retire? Oh, we want to move to the panhandle of Florida and collect seashells each morning. Wow, it just grabs you, doesn't it? Or, or I want to camp from 65 to 80. I, I want to retire. I was with Bill Bryan, the chaplain of Dallas Seminary, when we did George Rutenbar's funeral, and Chuck Swindoll was there, and I was taking notes on my sermon, trying to teach him. And uh, uh, we were talking a little bit, and I I asked uh, uh, Bill Bryan, I said, well, when do you think Chuck is going to retire? He's 77 over there in Frisco. They only got 8,000 people. He needs to lay it down. He's been gray-headed for 30 years. And Bill is 75, four or five, still the chaplain. I said, when are you going to retire, Bill? You guys are getting up there. He said, I'm with Chuck. When I can find the word retire in the Bible, I'm going to do it. And we're talking about God's service. Some of you folks retired from jobs. That's great. You need to get out of that place. And now we know you're multimillionaires on your pension. Uh, guess what? There's more to life than being on a job. This kingdom work, there's always room. I think of Ruth Fox. My brother Paul loved Ruth because he always made her paint all these panels. She's painted our children's uh, hallways. This, that. I mean, oh, and he's going to ask you, what did you do? I heard your excuses. I heard your unavailability. But I'm going to judge your life's work and only what passes the test, that you did something with the right motive and you did it for Jesus. There'll be no reward for criticism and unavailability. It will only be for those who did their best, whether they failed or succeeded, He'll give you a reward if you did it in Jesus' name. The church is full of a bunch of lazy, observant, worldly Christians. We have forgot we're at war with the enemy. We don't realize we're in warfare and we got people sitting around and all they hope for is I'll be done and I'm already five minutes over. That's their spirituality. When is God going to get what he paid for in you? And then there's a whole category of human beings 
who are saying to God, I don't want your best, I won't receive him, and they show up before the white throne judgment, and guess who runs the court? The one they rejected, Christ. He will judge, he will judge. I wish we had more time to talk what a judgment day that will be. The great judgment. I always think of my father. I asked him what led him to the Lord. And he said, I was singing in, uh, let's see, he was born in 1908, so put uh, nine years on that. So what is that, 1917? I was going to brush arbors out in the country in Oklahoma, and they built these brush arbors. And at the camp meeting, they sang, oh, where shall I be when the last trumpet sounds, when it sounds so loud as to wake up the dead? Oh, where shall I be? And he said, the next day at nine years of age, I was plowing my dad's place. And he said, all day that song rung through my heart. Where shall I be? Where shall I be? I finally stopped the team of mules. I knelt down by a bunch of elder sprouts on this fresh ground that I plowed. And right there I said, only you, judge, only you, God, can tell me where I'm going to be. I'm either going to be condemned and sentenced to hell, or only can I say, you rescued me. I'm a nine-year bib overall, poor boy of a bunch of children. I'm only a work hand to my father. Will you have me? And God saved him as a nine-year-old boy because he was finally convicted. I'm not going to be right in the final day. I asked some of you, where will you be? What will you do if you show up before God the Son now? Will it be condemnation? Or will it be, I, I don't even have an appointment in this court. My case has been settled. You see, all of us that are Christians, our case has been settled out of court at the cross. We, we, God has no case against you once you accept Christ. He's the only one that can let you escape the judgment of God, and he is the judge. This one is Christ, the most controversial issue in 2,000 years. Who is Christ? He's no watered-down Santa Claus. He's the mighty God that conquered death, hell, and the grave, and is coming again. This is our Christ.